the gap between the haves and the have-nots continues to widen, and Americans are failing to save money, struggling with student loan debt, and facing decreasing financial literacy, according to the new FINRA Foundation National Financial Capability Study. And that's despite an overall improvement in the U.S. economy. On this episode of FINRA Unscripted, the first of a two-part series, we delve into these study results and their implications for researchers, policymakers, and advocates. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show two FINRA Unscripted veterans. We've got Jerry Walsh, the president of the FINRA Foundation and senior vice president of investor education at FINRA. And we've got Gary Matola, director of research at the FINRA Foundation. Gary and Jerry, welcome back. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Nice to be here. So last year, we heard from you on the study on millennial investors. That was a two-part series. And surprise, this one will also be a two-part series as well. This year, we're having you back to talk about a new study, the 2018 National Financial Capability Study, or NFCS, for a little bit less of a mouthful. Jerry, what is this new study? Well, this is the fourth wave of a study that we started in 2009. Our goal back then and our goal continues to be that we want to measure and understand the perceptions and attitudes and experiences and behaviors that Americans have when it comes to their money. And we want to be able to do that across a large and diverse sample so that we and other researchers can really take a deep dive into the data to understand how Americans are faring. So, Gary, how do we collect this data and how often? Jerry mentioned it's in the fourth year. How often is this done? Yeah, so we started in 2009 and we collect the data every three years. 2009 wave, 2012 wave, 2015 wave, and now the 2018 wave. And it's a very large sample. Each wave is over $25,000. So we have a rich, diverse data source. Again, it spans almost a decade. And it's collected online. So with such a large group, what's the diversity of the pool like? The pool very much tracks the U.S. population. So it's large enough with 25 to 27,000 people that we're able to make sure that it aligns with the census. So across a variety of demographic cuts like age, gender, marital status, education, employment, we're able to slice and dice the data. It's representative of the American population on key variables like education, income, age, and race, and a couple others as well. Now, a question for you. It's midway through 2019. So why is this the 2018 study coming out now? Well, the data collection concluded pretty late in the fall of 2018. And when you have a data set that's as large as this one is, it takes some time to go through it and to really fully understand the data that we're seeing and the trends that we're seeing. Yeah, you know, there are several stages. You have to clean the data. You have to analyze the data. You have to interpret the data. Then you have to write it. Then some additional people get in, and there's a lot of editing that goes on. Crazy people like me (laughs) edit it. The editing is a fantastic stage. You get input that you had never thought of. As a researcher, you get too close to the data at some point. So there are so many people at FINRA that have weighed in on this report, and the report is better for it. It's really a collaborative effort because we run some of the trends that we're seeing with researchers that we know to see what they think and is this aligning with the research that they're doing. We also take a look at findings and measure them against other studies that are being done in different contexts to see if what 
what we're finding through our survey is similar to other researchers' work. And so what have you found during that process? One of the things that's quite striking, particularly 10 years after the end of the Great Recession, is that while financial capability is improving for a number of Americans, we're seeing pretty wide and persistent gaps among certain segments of the population, those who are prospering and those who are struggling. And it's particularly notable, the data are showing that younger Americans, those who don't have a college degree, African Americans, and people who have lower income are not faring as well. Following the Great Recession, we saw that the economy was on an upward trajectory, but we're seeing a flatlining of financial capability. And it's not the case anymore that a rising tide of the rising economy is lifting all boats. So what does that mean for people who are looking at this data? How can they take that information? Well, it helps inform programs and it can help inform policies as well. The audience for this data is not only the data geeks like Gary and me that exist in the world, but other researchers and federal agencies, state agencies. Uh, One of the ways that the financial capability study has been used over the past 10 years is by state legislators who are considering whether to implement programs related to fostering financial education. And the framing is often based on the data what they're seeing in their particular state. So the data is rich enough that it allows them to break it down into the communities that they're looking at. Yeah, and the data shines a spotlight on some parts of America that are doing well and some parts that are struggling. And because of the size of the sample, we can really get granular and look at some of the demographic groups that could really use some help. Now, the Finner Foundation has programs to help close these gaps, but we see shining the light on the problem as helpful, and some other organizations can step in and try to help close the gaps as well. It's also really important for industry to understand. So for FINRA member firms and the registered representatives who are working with individual Americans saving for their retirement, planning for their child's college education, to understand what some of the trends and some of the obstacles and barriers are for people when it comes to saving. Because honestly, Caitlin, that's one thing we're saying. Americans are not saving. Yeah, that's concerning, especially as you mentioned, 10 years after the financial crisis, you'd hope to see more of that. And one of the questions that kind of gets to the core of savings and financial well-being is one of the questions that's on the survey every year. It's how confident are you that you could come up with $2,000 if an unexpected needs arose within the next month? What was the answer this year and how does that compare to prior years? Well, Americans are financially fragile. That's our measure. And we saw that 43% of Americans say that they're pretty confident that they could come up with $2,000. That's up from 35% back in 2009, and that's a positive sign. But it's still the case that the majority of Americans are not fully confident that they would be able to come up with that amount if an unexpected expense arose. So what makes $2,000 the magic number here? I remember when that question was being developed, and I've spoken with the researcher who developed the question, and basically she said that they were trying to come up with a dollar value that was similar to a repair on an automobile. Because if you lose your transportation, you know, that can really impact your ability to get to work and your ability to do all sorts of tasks, so it can kind of cascade and create more problems. So that's where that $2,000 came from. 
So another area that savings has a huge impact on is retirement. And with 10,000 Americans turning 65 every day, I'm sure that this is an even more important topic today than even 10 years ago. What does the 2018 study show when it comes to retirement? Are we saving properly for that? About 58% of Americans have a retirement account, whether it's a 401k or equivalent at work or an IRA. But what we're seeing is that a significant number of Americans have not figured out what they need for retirement. And too many Americans feel like they will not have enough money for retirement. Look, we know that there's been a retirement problem in America for quite some time. So this is not necessarily new data, but it is important data because it's showing that the problem is still continuing and we need to start thinking about some solutions. Going along with this, in 2009, about 58% of Americans had retirement accounts. And now in 2018, about 58% of Americans have retirement accounts. In other words, we've made no progress on that front. And Gary's observation that the saving for retirement has remained flat occurs at a time where we see that more people are reporting that they're able to have savings. When we ask the question, are you spending less than you earn? More people are saying yes, but they must be spending that money on something else, not on retirement savings. We don't know if that's an access issue, if there should be broader access to 401ks, for example, or if that's a reflection of a higher cost of living. That's something that the data doesn't tell us. It tells us the what and not the why. But we see this trend and it occurs in other areas like saving for college. Fewer parents are saving for their child's college educations. It's all across the board. Yeah, and it has far-reaching implications as well. We know from other research that we've done that retirement plans, particularly employer-provided retirement plans, are an on-ramp to investing outside retirement plans. So the extent that we can make retirement plans more available to the American population, I think it could only benefit Americans and potentially help solve the retirement savings crisis. The retirement savings crisis may well be more poignant for women, too, because one of the trends that we've seen is while the level of saving for retirement has remained fairly steady across the population and fairly steady when you look at men, women seem to be experiencing a drop off in retirement savings. And that's troubling, especially when you consider that women live longer. And it's interesting that you also mentioned that a significant number of Americans haven't looked at how much they might need to save. And it's hard to develop a plan to save if you don't really know what the end goal is. And maybe part of it is a head in the sand. They don't want to see how big that number is. But what kind of impact does that have? Well, the not wanting to see the number, I think, often drives people. And when they see the number, they think, oh, my goodness, I can never attain that goal. It's unrealistic for me. But when we see a pattern of lack of savings, we see anxiety rise. And that's one of the things that we measured in this survey. We were asking questions about financial anxiety and stress when people are thinking about or talking about their finances. How do they feel? And we see that about half of Americans don't really like talking about money and they don't really like thinking about it. But that's particularly true for younger Americans who, if they are able to get started early, have the power of compound interest on their side. And yet those are the Americans who are most likely to be stressed out about money. And single women, when you compare them to single men or to married men or women, are also among the most likely to be stressed out. 
And we do have to be careful. It's very, very difficult for some of the households in America to save given their income and given the challenges that they face with health insurance and medical bills and rising cost of college. That said, one promising stat in the study was that 25% of households who make less than $25,000 have emergency savings. So that's promising, but at the same time, it's challenging for these households. It's promising. And one of the things, though, that we have to recognize is that stat is lower than it was in 2015. It was closer to three and 10, and now it's lower. And that's something, again, that if you don't see those trend lines, you don't know where the tough issues are that need to be tackled. And that's why we try to make this data as widely available as possible. We share it with federal regulators. We share it with people on the Hill. We'll be sharing it with FINRA member firms and obviously through the academic community and the financial well-being community. So that's actually a good transition into another question I had as well, where if you are struggling to make ends meet, you might also fall back on credit or non-traditional lenders like pawn shops. So the study looked into that as well. Why was it important to ask those questions? High-cost forms of borrowing are problematic because, well, they're high cost. So things like pawn shops and payday lenders, check-cashing shops, Americans are paying a lot of money that they don't necessarily have to to get access to credit. And it's particularly problematic in lower-income communities and minority communities. And one of the things that's shocking is that it's stubbornly persistent because in 2009, that was the first time that we asked the question about the use of these alternative non-banking lending facilities. And so we weren't so surprised to see that people were using pawn shops. You know, we were hearing stories back in 2009 about people having to do that, but the numbers haven't changed only a percentage point here and there have they changed. And that's what's a little bit scary. And researchers and policymakers alike wonder, why doesn't it change? And we added a question to the survey this year, essentially asking, are you comfortable using traditional financial service companies? And what we found is that there's a portion of America that's unbanked. And that portion of America is really not very comfortable in traditional banks and using traditional financial service providers. So that's one possible explanation. And another is access. And sometimes if you look around at payday lenders, the pawn shops are in the low-income communities and they're making that access easy. And it's not as easy to get access to some of the more traditional financial service companies. So what can be done to narrow some of these gaps and to help these vulnerable communities that are falling back on payday loans or having trouble saving? Part of what we've been doing at the FINRA Foundation is shining the spotlight from a research perspective so that policymakers can take action. The large data set allows people to examine, for example, as the Urban Institute is doing, they're taking a look at which types of debt people will default on first because there's this hierarchy of decision-making that people make. And most people won't default on their mortgage. They might default on a car payment and relative to different types of debt, what will they give up first? That's important for us all to know. But separately, we're out in the community. We're working with national nonprofits like the American Library Association, United Way Worldwide, Catholic Charities, AARP, Better Business Bureau, trying to get information that can help build financial capability and foster financial wellness across communities. 
And when you think about closing the gap, take race, for example, we see big gaps in race in terms of financial capability. But we know that there's systemic racism in America. And if you compare white Americans to, say, black Americans who have the same income level, who have the same education level, and are roughly of the same age and gender. In other words, if you compare apples to apples, those big race-based gaps shrink quite a bit. So things like education and income and those more systemic components of financial capability are really important. And making sure that everyone has the same access to the education and access to the opportunities. That's exactly right. And one of the things that we asked about as well was whether people had access to financial education, because that's an area that obviously we're quite interested in. And that number has stayed stubbornly low. About three in 10 Americans a few years ago and three in 10 Americans now have had the opportunity to engage in financial education. Some of the signs of hope are that the people who were offered and took advantage of 10 hours or more, so like a higher quantity of financial education, do better on a variety of financial capability measures, like whether they're overdrawing their checking account, whether they're paying off their credit card in full, those kinds of behaviors. And we do see that there are these improvements. There's a correlation. And that's important for the field to be aware of because there are some people out there saying, oh, financial education doesn't work. We disagree. We see strong evidence that there is a benefit to financial education. Yeah, not just from this study. So there's some evidence from the study that the quality of financial education matters and the quantity matters. But the Finner Foundation has funded other research that shows rigorous state financial education mandates also improve downstream behaviors, credit behaviors, and use of alternative financial services or high-cost borrowing like we just talked about. And on that, the high-cost borrowing, what's interesting about that is that the researcher that examined that using national financial capability study data was able to control for some of the race factors and found that there really wasn't any difference. Whereas you do see, just looking at the data, that minority populations are more likely to be using these non-bank alternative borrowing mechanisms, that those race differences disappear. So we have covered a lot of very heavy topics in this episode. So we're going to wrap it up for this one, and we're going to come back on the next episode of FINRA Unscripted to talk more about some of the newer topics and the newer questions in this year's study and what we can be doing to help improve the situation of Americans and financial capability. So Gary and Jerry, thanks for taking the time to sit down on this episode. Tune in for the next one to hear more from them. From Washington, I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. If you have any questions for future guests or ideas for future episodes, you can let us know. You can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org. Until next time. Please note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation to such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO, or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form without the express written consent of FINRA. FINRA.